and welcome to mini episode 198 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have three spooky stories for you today. And the last story comes from September the 5th, 2022. And story number one comes from Petra. I grew up on a small island in the Atlantic called Madeira. Our house was very small and old. My grandparents extended the house when they bought it so that my parents could live with them. It wasn't an amazing house, but it was modest. The outline of the house was made with bricks, but the inner walls were made with some sort of wood canes as the houses in that area could get too hot during the summer and apparently that helped to keep it cool. When I was 13 during spring, I started to hear some noises coming from the floors and walls at night in my bedroom. I couldn't explain what it was at first, but then I realised that it sounded like scratches. The sound kept going every night and it got more intense as the time went on. I would turn the lights on and couldn't see anything there, but I definitely knew where the sound was coming from. It started to keep me awake and my grades were affected because of it. My mum was so angry because my grades had been going down, so when I told her what was going on, she decided that she would spend the night in my bedroom. She couldn't hear a thing. She thought I was making excuses and dismissed what I had told her. From then on, I decided to pretend to sleep in the bedroom, but actually was going to the living room and sleeping on the sofa. Fast forward to that summer, my brother came to visit. We spent every night watching horror movies, as we still do when we visit each other, and I remember occasionally telling him about the noises, but I think he thought I was trying to mess with him. He would sleep in my bedroom and I would sleep on the sofa, and I was at ease with that deal. One very early morning, I woke up to screams. It was my mum and my brother. My brother heard the noises. He turned the light on on his phone to see what it was, and as he turned it on, a cockroach fell on him. He brushed it off, but then another one fell on him. He moved the light to the walls and thousands of cockroaches had filled the room. They were crawling and flying everywhere. In a state of panic, he called my mum with his phone, and she finally saw it with her own eyes. In the end, they had to hoover the walls and the ceiling to be able to get rid of it, and since then, I developed a phobia of creepy crawlies. Turns out that somehow, a nest grew inside those hollow walls and kept multiplying until they had to burst out through the wood, so I'd spent months listening to the nests grow through the walls. The year after that incident, my nan had passed away. It was a really sad period, but once I was ready, I decided that I would move to her bedroom as I could no longer spend any time in my bedroom in fear of the story repeating itself and sleeping on the sofa was causing me aches and pains. The room was quite big in comparison to the small room I had, and as it was an original part of the house, It was all made with brick. I had one window by the side of my bed. It had metal blinds on the outside, a metal grid to prevent anyone from getting in to rob the house, and glass inner windows. It faced a dark alley by the side of the house, which was a dead end, but I felt safe with all the protection through that window. I've always been a night owl. I was doing an arts course at the time, so I'd spend the nights painting and during the spring and summer, I'd always leave the glass window open so that the bedroom could get cooler. One night, I heard steps by the alley. It went all the way to the dead end. 
My initial thought was that maybe my dad was trying to prank me, although that was never his thing. He worked late, so he would be coming home around that time. I ignored it. The steps came back and this time it stopped by the window. I stared at the darkness through the blinds but quickly thought he'll have to continue walking if he wants to get inside the house. But then nothing happened. Everything was silent. I felt observed and had a terrible sense of dread. Suddenly, I heard the front door. It was my dad. I didn't say a word to him. I didn't want him to know he had freaked me out. I went back to my room but the feeling of dread and being observed was still there. Suddenly the scratching sounds came back but this time it was on metal. I was terrified. I wasn't going to risk any cockroaches coming into the house so I rushed and tried to close the glass windows. That's when I saw a tall, dark shape move to the dead end of the alley. The scratching stopped. This time I knew it wasn't my dad. But I wasn't willing to wait and find out anymore. So I went back to the sofa in the living room. I was definitely too scared. What happened next was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. As I was laying on the sofa, I could still feel someone observing me. But exhausted, I started to close my eyes. That's when I felt like I was being choked. It wasn't like someone was strangling me around the neck. It was like my nose, my throat and lungs were filled with concrete. I felt heavy and would wake up gasping for air. That feeling kept happening every time I would fall asleep. After the third time, I turned the TV on and tried to stay awake. I was in tears and afraid that I would die if I actually fell asleep. I don't remember how long it actually went on for, but I know it kept happening throughout the night. To this day, I still have no idea what was lurking in the shadows, but I still remember that feeling in my throat. That cockroach's story has made me want to quit the podcast and go into hiding because that is horrendous. I hate cockroaches so much. I hate them so much. I hate their little scuttly feet. I hate that you can hear them weebling around. Oh, they're absolutely vile. They are vile. There's no way I'd sleep in that room ever again as well. I think you did the right thing there. And I'm really glad that it wasn't you that had the experience of seeing the thousands of them bursting out of your walls. And as for the man in the alleyway, I mean, was it just a man? But that doesn't explain the the real sense of dread and then those feelings of like sleep paralysis afterwards. Like, is it possible that there was a, an actual person standing in the alleyway and then that feeling of dread prompted you to have those terrifying dreams? Or not even dreams, they weren't dreams. That, that feeling of being choked and gasping awake and that happening every time you would fall asleep. I don't know if I'd prefer cockroaches or mystery choking man, to be honest. And story number two comes from Clara. My parents are divorced and I live with my mum. I still see my dad every few weeks and that's where it all happened. A couple of years ago, I stayed at my dad's apartment and went to bed as I usually did and fell asleep pretty quickly. At around 3am, I woke up and turned to the door, which was opened a bit because we have cats and I don't want them to get locked in a room. I looked at the door and standing in my doorway was an old man. He had short white hair and wore black combat boots and kind of looked like a farmer. I got really scared and turned away and never really saw him again until I saw him in my dream one time. A few years after that I heard knocking and scratching from the room beside me. 
I told it to go away and the sound stopped. Nothing happened, but my dad didn't believe me. I told my mum and she actually believed me because she also sees and hears stuff like that. Well, we've now established that the knocking and scratching is actually just one giant cockroach trying to get your attention or loads of cockroaches on each other's shoulders in a trench coat trying to pretend to be an old man. I am glad, though, that you were able to talk about it with your mum and your mum believed you because it's hard when you're trying to talk to somebody about these things and they either don't believe you or they dismiss you or they kind of scoff at you or whatever or they're like oh don't be ridiculous but it's good to have somebody that you're able to talk to about it and get that sense of validation and I wonder who he was like I wonder was he like a little residual energy or if your dad's house was built on a farm where somebody had lost their life or it was somebody connected to your dad I would I would love to know and story number three comes from Nancy In the late 1980s to late 1990s, the reality theatre company rented and performed in a cavernous former auto repair shop in an artsy neighbourhood near downtown Columbus, Ohio. The building is locally famous for the enormous 30-foot by 15-foot copy of the Mona Lisa that someone painted on one of the outside walls in 1990. This alone would be enough to attract attention but it's all the more noticeable for the fact that the mural was painted sideways so that Mona seems to be lying on her ear. The members of the theatre company renovated the interior of the building to create a simple black box theatre space, literally all black, that seated about 50 people. Reality theatre primarily produced plays that had LGBTQ themes, although in later years the fair expanded to include more general interest, contemporary and even classic plays. I became involved in the theatre when I was cast as Hester Salaman in Equus, and for several years I appeared in plays a few times a year, mostly in smaller roles. Eventually I drifted more and more into box office work, costume design and script writing. I finally had to admit to myself that I'm not a great actor, The theatre was founded during the worst of the AIDS epidemic, which had already taken the lives of several of the founding members of the group by the time I got involved, and many of the people I worked with had lost good friends. In fact, one of the people I met early on, and who I became a close friend of, later died of AIDS only a few weeks after being diagnosed. There were two odd occurrences that I experienced at the theatre over the years I worked there. One was during the run of a play called Child Byron by Romulus Linney about the poet Lord Byron and his daughter Ada Lovelace. Much of the play involves interactions between the adult Ada and the ghost or perhaps drug-induced hallucination of her dead father. The set was simple and it was not changed at all throughout the course of the play. The main area of the set was meant to be the sitting room of Ada the few pieces of furniture and the props suggesting an early 19th century library. There was a small round table at which Ada sat at various points in the play. Spread over the table was a heavy tapestry-type cloth and on top of that were a few books, a cup, a saucer and an old-fashioned silver butter knife. The knife figures in the plot when Ada, in an overly dramatic gesture, grabs it in a supposed attempt to cut her wrists. Her father, Lord Byron, mocks her suicide attempt by pointing out that she's using a butter knife and she puts it back on the table. The knife never features again in the plot, and throughout the run of the show it stayed on the table along with the other set pieces. 
One night after several weekends of performances that had gone without any glitches, the actress playing Ada reached for the knife at the appropriate time, only to find that it wasn't there. Thinking quickly, she half turned away from the audience and mimed grabbing the knife and trying to slit her wrist with it. The actor playing Lord Byron gave his line. She mimed putting the knife back on the table and the performance moved on. I think most of the audience members were none the wiser. When the performance was over, a search for the knife turned up nothing and the cast and crew members were all mystified as to what might have happened to it. I don't remember if the props person had checked that the knife was there just before the performance, as she should have, but even if she had neglected to check, it wouldn't explain why the knife had disappeared in the first place, since there was no reason for it to ever have been removed from the table. Fortunately, we were able to get a replacement antique butter knife in time for the next performance, and there were no more problems with it or any other props during the rest of the run. It was as we were all striking the set at the end of the run that a cast member finally found the missing knife. He had removed the props from the round table and taken off the tapestry cloth. And there was the original knife, lying right in the middle of the table. The cloth was thick and coarse enough that the knife had been lying underneath undetected, presumably for the entire time that it had been missing. Clearly the placement of the knife under the cloth had to have been deliberate, so the only remaining questions were who put it there and why. I knew all of the cast and crew members quite well, having worked with most of them for a few years at that time, and it was a very congenial group. I certainly wasn't aware of any tensions, and I could not imagine any one of those people wanting to sabotage the production, either out of spite towards one of the other performers or crew members, or even as a practical joke. And what would have been the point of putting the knife under the cloth, as opposed to hiding it somewhere else. I can't speak to whether any of the previous but by then departed company members might have engaged in practical jokes. The second incident took place during rehearsals for an LGBTQ-themed musical comedy review. I was in the cast, and our director was a veteran of the theatre scene in Columbus who had been involved in numerous productions at Reality. He had been among the founding members of the group, and had many close friends who had performed in the theatre's productions over the years. One evening after rehearsal, the cast came out to sit in the audience or house as the director gave our notes. But he started off his remarks by telling us very matter-of-factly that as we had been going through the show and he was watching us from the house, he had noticed someone in the dark window of the lighting booth located high up in the wall on one side of the house. We had no one running lights for the rehearsal that night. We were just using a general lighting arrangement for the stage. The director had said that this figure had stayed there at the window throughout the rehearsal, seemingly watching the proceedings on the stage, although it was gone by the time we came out into the space for notes, and that while it had been difficult to make out the figure's features in the gloom, he was sure that it was an old friend of his, one of the actors in the group who had died of AIDS-related diseases sometimes before. When he said this, there was an audible gasp from the cast members, and we all jerked our heads up towards the window, but of course there was nothing there. After, we all thanked him for sharing this interesting observation, and he proceeded with his notes, and the production went on from there with no more spectral appearances. I actually worked up in that same lighting booth for a later show, my first and only stint as a lighting crew member, and it was not a pleasant experience. As I said, the interior structure of the theatre had been constructed by the members of the theatre company, 
and they had a very tight budget. The lighting booth was reachable only by a crude wooden ladder leading up through a square opening in the floor of the booth, the floor just being some sheets of thick plywood nailed to the beams. The booth consisted of an ancient lighting board on a makeshift table in front of the window that looked down onto the stage, yes that window, and a rickety folding chair to sit on. There was a very small lamp that during a performance gave just enough light to illuminate the lighting board and the script. My recollection is that one needed a flashlight to get from the top of the ladder over to the table with the lighting board. Recalling it now, I have no idea what possessed me to agree to sit up there all alone in the dark night after night throughout a six-week run of the show, but I did, and I'm happy to report that I never saw our director's friend or anyone else. I was also very happy when the run of that show was over. I am an advocate of never having practical jokes on set. Never, never, never. You know why? Because they're very stressful. So I'm going to say that wasn't a practical joke, especially, especially if it's a knife that's pivotal to a particular scene. Your props person at the beginning of every single run, your stage manager at the beginning of every single run would check and go, right, is the knife on the table yet? Fine. Then I have a tick list. So how in the name of goodness did the knife end up underneath the tablecloth? But quick thinking on uh, on your actress part because she probably managed that incredibly well and actually you're probably right, the audience didn't notice. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if I would have wanted to have known in the notes, oh, by the way, there was somebody in the lighting box watching your entire performance. Somebody in the death trap lighting box was watching your entire performance. And I believe it was the ghost of my dead friend. I don't know if I'd want to know. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you to Petra, Clara and Nancy for sending in your stories. Remember the last story came from September the 5th, 2022. If you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com and if you are desperate for extra content, you can subscribe to patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.